You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and take them and uh, reopen them to the book of Exodus. The last several weeks, we've been moving quite quickly through uh, some of these remaining chapters as we con- come to the end of our study in Exodus. Um, Exodus 25 uh, is where you can turn to. Um, we, we've been working pretty quickly through uh, chapter 25 all the way through 33. So the last five weeks, we've covered uh, eight to nine chapters. And um, I don't know about you, it's been really uh, insightful for me to see how, again, chapters that oftentimes we're quick to just pass over and move quickly through, uh, and sometimes just even skip, have such New Testament relevancy for us. These are, these are passages that help us to know Jesus. Uh, they're passages that are meant to point us to Jesus. And so um, hopefully you have felt that over the past five weeks. Hopefully you've been able to see those connections and see why it's so important for us to grasp these passages in relation to what we're studying uh, or what we do study oftentimes in the New Testament. Exodus 25 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastplate, uh, breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. We looked at chapter 25, 26, and 27 uh, to kick off this five-week uh, series and, and looking specifically at what the tabernacle is and what it means for us. Uh, we talked about it being a homecoming because it's God's mission to bring us back to him. It's God's mission to reunite us. We've broken fellowship because of sin, and God wants to bring us back together. And so we said God's mission is to be with his people. But because he is holy and his people are sinful, the only way to restore his presence in the life of his people is through a meeting place where both justice and mercy can be found together. Uh, these, these chapters right here carry a theme of God taking steps to reestablish his presence in the life of his people. It's the idea of God being with us. It's something that we celebrate here at Christmas, um, that God is with us, Emmanuel. He sends Jesus as that additional step, that next step in this process. So the tabernacle is God bringing himself to the people, his presence dwelling in this holy sanctuary, but there's all these parameters that get put in place that veil him from the common folk, right? It's the priests that get access to him, but not everybody. Jesus comes to remove those veils. He comes to tear down those structures that would keep us from being accessible to God. Um, The tabernacle, particularly the Ark of the Covenant, points us towards the how for enjoying the presence of God, right? The cherubim, Uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, as we saw, it reminds us that we don't belong in the presence of God, right? The the cherubim are uh, there, and they remind us of what was happening in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. The cherubim are placed there uh, to keep sinful man out. They can't come eat uh, of the tree of life, right? And so you you see this being constructed. You're seeing this being built, the Ark of the Covenant coming together, and these cherubim communicate that we don't belong here, that this is a place where we shouldn't be. 
I, uh, I had the chance, Lauren and I had the chance to go to a Georgia game recently with the Ledesma family. And so we go to this incredible experience at a Georgia game that, that I will probably never get to experience again. We were in a skybox seat where we had all kinds of food to eat. And the whole time we're kind of walking through there and being there, I'm thinking like, I don't belong here. Like, like this isn't me. Like, I shouldn't be here. Like, I'm completely out of my element, right? But the people who I were with, the Ledesmas, knew somebody who, who owned a Sky Suite. And so it was like, hey, we get to be here because of who we know, right? We get to be here because of a relationship that exists. And so while this isn't me, I don't belong here, I get to be here, right? And so the cherubim say, we don't belong here, right? We're sinful. We shouldn't be able to approach a holy God. And yet the relationship that we have with Jesus gives us access to a place that we don't belong. Even the cherubim's posture, right? Like they're bowing before something far greater than them, right? It's the holiness of Yahweh. And so even though they would say, hey, you don't get to come, you're sinful, God says there's something greater happening here. We can give them access because his holiness, his justice will be served but his mercy too will be expressed. It's, so, it's such important uh, pictures for us to see as we celebrate the birth of Christ here at Christmas time. Note that it's here where the Christmas story picks up, right? Like I wanted you to see part of the reason we were studying this, this book of Exodus was to see the connections that come to the New Testament. We see this in Luke chapter one. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn away many, or he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers, to the children, and the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." There had been silence for hundreds of years, right? God had not spoken to his people. Their sin and rebellion, he had, he had, he had removed some of that active presence with them, and there had been silence. And, and, and in the midst of all that silence, God breaks it by communicating in the temple. These very places that we've been talking about, all this structure set up for God's presence, he intercedes in this environment, communicates to Zechariah, the time has come. I'm sending my son and your son is going to prepare the way, right? It's after this that then Gabriel goes to Mary and informs her that, that she will bear the Messiah. But it's in this moment, in the temple, in the midst of all that we've been talking about in the Old Testament, that God breaks his silence and says, I am going to be with you. I am going to invite you into my presence, all right? 
And so we see this homecoming of being able to, to rejoin with God in the ways that the temple is, and the tabernacle is laid out, which eventually becomes the temple, right? It, it communicates a need to be with God. He created us in the Garden of Eden to be with him. We broke fellowship. The tabernacle, Christ, and the church are all steps where God comes to dwell with his people, pointing us to that last stage of glory where we will be with him forever. The challenge from this week, five weeks ago, was to understand if you're with God, are you following his instruction? Are you trusting his provision? Are you relying upon his guidance? Those things that we find in the Ark of the Covenant, those things that were stored there, they stored a copy of the Ten Commandments. They stored the, the, the manna where God had provided food for them. They stored the, the budding rod of Aaron when they needed guidance and direction for how to establish leadership. These are things that God still provides for us today. We know that we're in relationship with God when we are yielding to his instruction, when we are trusting his provision, and we're following his guidance, all right? That's the application for us. Are we doing those things? That led us into discussion about the priesthood. So back in Exodus chapter 28, not only does God establish this holy sanctuary, this holy structure, he sets up the people that will lead us to God's presence. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These men were set up and they're going to go through holy washings and holy garments and holy sacrifices to, to outwardly cleanse them, to make them acceptable for the Lord. And they're tasked with bringing God's people to him. If the tabernacle helps us understand our way home, the priesthood is our help for getting home because it's through the priesthood that God provides representation at his mercy seat, a representation met best by Jesus. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about how Jesus is the better priest, right? The priesthood points us to Jesus. He gives us better support, right? The, the priests were supposed to write the names of the, the, uh, the tribes of Israel on their garments so that they symbolically were bringing God's people into his presence when they came into the Holy of Holies. Well, Jesus does, it, does us better than that, right? He doesn't just take our names to the presence of God. He tears down the veil so that we have access to the Holy of Holies. Right? He brings us literally into the presence of God. He's a better priest because he offers better safety, right? The priest needed bells to let us know that they were still alive, that they hadn't died in the presence of God. Jesus already dies, and now he lives and comes into the presence of God as the resurrected one. He's the better priest because his sanctification is better. His sympathy is better. He gives us better clothes, better washings, better sacrifices, ultimate versions of all of those things, right? We're clothed in his righteousness, not some outwardly uh, human garment put together. He puts an end to sacrifices because his sacrifice is better. And he gives us better intercession, right? Zechariah is praying for the people of God here in this setting, and there's people outside praying as well. But Jesus, we're told, he lives night and day to intercede for us. Not just in limited times, he's always interceding for us. The point, though, that we saw is that Aaron and all the other priests can't do this perfectly. They struggle with idols. They struggle with selfishness. 
Remember, we saw Aaron, who's supposed to be the priest of all priests. He creates a golden calf, and then he blames everybody for it. He wants them punished, not himself. He's not a good intercessor. He's not a good advocate. He's ready to throw everybody else under the bus. It points us to the fact that Jesus can do all these things. Jesus can do all these things that we need, right? We saw the golden calf. And what it means for us, too, as we looked at idolatry, idolatry that we're still prone to struggle with ourselves today. Just as Israel disobeyed God by distrusting his plans and distorting his ways, we, too, must be careful to resist the temptation to grow impatient with God's timing and to grow discontent by turning to idols to meet our needs. That's what happens when we get impatient with God. We turn to idols. We turn to other things, and it's certainly what happened with the children of Israel. In Exodus 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We said that's what what sparks their, their giving of themselves to idols is they start to question what God's really doing. They get restless and impatient with him, just like we do oftentimes. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us that this Exodus 31 story is preserved to help us today not do the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It says, don't be like these individuals. Don't be like these people. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. It says, use this as an example to not do, not fall as they did. I challenge you that the key to fighting back against idolatry is remembering the Lord's goodness, to remember his love, to remember his faithfulness. It comes from Psalm 100 verse 5. I looked at my notes again and kind of repackaged them for this morning. I want to give you three quick ways, like how do we turn to an idol or why do we turn to an idol? One, we get restless and impatient with God's timing. We get restless and impatient with God's timing, right? They, the people stop doing what they should be doing and focus on what isn't happening for them. We said that God had given them instructions through Moses. Here's what you need to be doing while you wait on Moses. Jesus has given those instructions too. Here's what we should be doing as we wait for his return. And yet oftentimes we get restless and impatient and we start focusing on what the Lord hasn't done for us versus what we should be doing for him. Then you start to recreate and redefine God and his rules for your life. They create a God that they don't have to fear. Remember, we've seen the children of Israel terrified at the foot of the mountain about God and his presence and his glory and his holiness. They don't wanna go near him and they're begging Moses to do all the talking for them. Nobody's scared of this golden idol. Nobody's scared of this golden calf. They've created a God that they don't fear, and they've created a God they can manipulate. They created a God who will do what they want done. And then, number three, they excuse their sin by comparing themselves to others. Aaron dismisses his responsibility by blaming others, creates a reality where he's not really in sin, which is what we're prone to do as well. We try to change the facts and reinterpret the reality of what's really happening to to make us look better, and that's what Aaron does. How do we get away from idols? Remember God's character, his faithfulness, right? Remember that he's good. Remember that he's faithful to us. Recognize that we need atonement. 
When we fall into idolatry, it's not about doing better. It's about coming back to Jesus who has already done for us. Sin is always an opportunity to glory in God over your works when seeking resolution. It's not about us doing good works to make atonement. It's about remembering that Christ has made the atonement for us. And then reciting with the Lord and standing against sin. Right? Exodus 32, uh, verse 26. Moses makes an appeal. Who's on the Lord's side? Who, who wants to repent and come back to him? He says in verse 26, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. We can, we can always flee away from the idols that we fall back into by coming back and reciting with the Lord. We looked at, at the end of Exodus 32 and then into 33, looking at reversals, erasures, and departures. And we looked at some challenging questions. Does God change his mind? Does, does God blot people out of the book of life? Does, does God leave his people? And we said that God carries out his plans to preserve his people, specifically by communicating planned judgment unless his people repent as planned, which enables him to maintain his merciful presence with us if we truly desire it. We said that God doesn't change his plans, but he does allow anticipated actions to be adjusted. Just as a parent may threaten to punish their children unless something changes, when the children change, the punishment doesn't have to come, and that's what God does for his people. He demonstrates justice. Hey, I'm going to deal with sin, but you can still change the outcome if you want to. You can still make changes. You can repent and turn, and, and, and my plans can be adjusted in, in a sense, right? He always planned to save the people. He communicates the threat of judgment to create the change that he desires. His plans don't change. He changes his people. He changes his people, and that's exactly what he does in the midst of this idolatry, and he uses Moses as an advocate to do so. We talked about how he doesn't erase salvation. He doesn't blot people out of his book as though they lose their salvation, but he does remove rebellion from the earth, right? We said that the blotting out in Exodus really carries the idea of them being destroyed or killed or removed from the earth, and what's Moses' heart here? He says, Lord, if you're going to blot Israel out, if you're going to be done with Israel, take me instead. Kill me, not Israel. Noble, uh, honoring, certainly not what Aaron was willing to do, right? But what does God communicate to Moses? The best of the best human beings at this time, he says, you're not good enough to be the sacrifice. You, you can't stand in place, right? And so it's, it's Jesus that's able to do that. And again, this story points us to Jesus. Jesus is who we long for because Moses can't be the sacrifice. We talked about how God doesn't depart from his people. He does withdraw his presence, but Moses says, hey, we got to have it back. We're not willing to go forward without you. I challenge you as the people of God today let us be so committed that we're not willing to move forward in any direction unless we believe the Lord goes with us, to not settle for anything less than the Lord's presence in our life. And so that took us to last week's sermon, God's goodness and glory. You'll remember that Moses requests of God, I want to see more of you. I want to experience more of you. And, and God responds by communicating his goodness. God's glory is best understood through his goodness a goodness revealed more and more in the sovereign ways he shows grace, mercy, provision, and protection, all of which find their ultimate revelation in Jesus. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. We talked about pursuing God as our most important treasure. To never be content and say, I know enough about God or I've had enough experience of God, I'm content. To always be wholly discontent with what we know about God. To be willing to go through whatever we need to go through to know him more. To plan to see him in his specific ways in our life, his goodness, his sovereignty, his provision, his protection. We talked about that sovereignty piece He says, I'll show grace and mercy to whom I will. We said that it's so important for us to see that God doesn't have to get permission to carry out his plans from anybody. Doesn't have to get permission to do it. Doesn't have to ask anybody to shower his blessings and his provision upon his people. He gets to do that because he's the sovereign. He's the one in control. We praise him for his willingness to reveal himself. Particularly in this Christmas season, he completely reveals himself for us to see by sending Christ. And then we finished last week by saying, instead of a description of the way God looks, we get a description of the way God is, making the word of God superior to a picture of God, meaning the best way to know him and pursue him is through his word. Moses doesn't draw us a picture of what he sees. Right? He could have he could have maybe attempted to do that, but when he wants us to see God, he tells us about his goodness. He doesn't draw a picture of God, he writes a description. This is who God is. Right? So I wanna I wanna leave you today with three things to remember and three things to do, which is typical of what we try to accomplish on our application Sundays. Three things to remember and three things to do as a point of application for what we've been learning these last five weeks. Number one. Old Testament ways of life, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the Ark of the Covenant, sacrifices, they express the justice and mercy of God that we need. Old Testament ways of life express the justice and mercy of God that we need. It helps us to see that the Old Testament remains relevant for today, right? It's not outdated. It's not uh, been updated by the New Testament as though it's no longer needed. It gives us insight into the justice and mercy of God. He's not a different God in the Old Testament. He's a God of justice and mercy in the Old Testament, just as he is in the New Testament. The Old Testament ways of life help us to see that. So we've been heavy these past few weeks on tabernacle construction, priesthood development, Ark of the Covenant usage, sacrifice usage. Let it it sink in and help you see the justice and mercy of God. And we need both, right? We need sin dealt with. Many of us have been hurt by others who are deep in sin. And we want that dealt with and we should want that dealt with. But we also need the mercy of God because we too have offended people in our own sin and we should be dealt with and God chooses to let our dealings happen with Christ on the cross. Number two, idolatry remains a real threat for us today. And if we aren't careful, we will grow content with the things of God without God idolatry remains a real threat for us today. And if we aren't careful, we will grow content with the things of God, the things that he gives us. Remember, that was what he proposed to Moses and Israel. Hey, I'm gonna back off. You obviously don't want me. You want a golden calf instead. I'm gonna back up a little bit um, and I'm gonna give you the promised land. I'm gonna give you the things that I, I made promises to you about but I'm gonna send an angel instead of myself. And and Moses says, that's not gonna be good enough for us. We don't want the promised land without you, right? He says, we gotta have your presence. 
We got to have you. We don't want the other without you. That's what we have to come to a realization of when we fight idolatry is that we don't want the things of God without God, right? And then number three, when you come to know God is good, it will start to remove all the daily doubts you might have about him. When you come to know God is good, it will start to remove all the daily doubts you might have about him. And that might be the most important thing to remember over these last five weeks. Remember how we said that there's movies that we watch and you're not sure if the character is a good guy or a bad guy? And once you find out for sure that he's a good guy, then you can trust all the other actions in the show. You can trust that they're for good purposes, right? I remember a, a, a series of movies that I was watching that were based on books, and I didn't know if the character that I was starting to like was good or bad, and I hadn't read the books, and I wasn't willing to keep watching movies without knowing if I was rooting for the right guy. And so I went into Barnes and Noble and I got the last book off the shelf and I read the last chapter because I had to know, is this guy good or bad? And when I found out he was good, I was like, okay, we're good now, right? Like I can enjoy the rest of this series because I know he's good. I can trust all of his actions because he's a good character, right? That's what we need to embrace about God because there's times where we'll doubt him, we'll doubt his goodness, we'll doubt his activity in our life because it doesn't feel good, it doesn't look good, it's hurtful, it seems like he, he wasn't there when we needed him. But if we believe he's good, if we believe he's always good, then when we're prone to doubt him on a daily basis, we can come back to the fact, no, he's a good character in this, which means he's good right now even though I don't see it, right? Don't forget that. The things that we do with this content that we want to remember. Number one, read and study the Old Testament devotionally so that you can gain a deeper appreciation and love for Jesus. Don't shy away from the Old Testament as an individual, right? Go to the Old Testament yourself. Sometimes we're in Old Testament books on Sunday morning. Sometimes we're not. Particularly when we're not, go to the Old Testament devotionally yourself. Be in the Old Testament Gain a deeper appreciation and love for Jesus, right? We said, if you're just a New Testament reader, it's like coming in halfway through a movie and not really understanding the character development. Everything in the Old Testament helps us to understand Jesus, who we want to worship in the New Testament. Number two, evaluate regularly the things you love most in this world to determine if they have gained an unhealthy priority in your life. Man, look at the things that you enjoy doing. Look at the things that you would say you love about this world and evaluate them regularly. Don't let them gain an unhealthy priority in your life, right? Believe that idolatry is real. Even though we're not setting up golden calves, there are things in your life that can become very golden and very calf-like if you're not careful. We ought to be regularly evaluating the things that we enjoy. Am I enjoying them to the glory of God or am I enjoying them as though they have become God for me, right? Evaluate those things regularly. And then number three, decide that because God is good, you will not go anywhere or do anything unless you are convinced that God is with you in it. Resolve that you're not gonna go anywhere or do anything unless you believe that God is with you in it. Some of you, and I'll close with this, some of y'all are already aware because we started sharing it and other people were sharing it, but I've tried to hold off telling everybody as a, as a group, as a church, 
that we are under contract for a house as the Vincent family. So we're super excited about that, right? Um, but one of the prayer parts for us that I was praying with our family is, Lord, as we're looking at this house, as we're getting ready to make an offer and, a, and, a, and hopefully go under contract, I said, Lord, we don't want to go into this house if you're not going here with us. If we're not going to be able to use this house as a ministry to my mom and to our church family, like we don't want it. Like you, you, you let that be for somebody else. But if you're going into this house with us, then we absolutely want to follow you there, right? Like that's what I want for the rest of my life. Like for the rest of my life, I want to be in a position where I say, if the Lord is going there, then that's where I want to be. And if he's not going there, I want nothing to do with it. Cause that's what Moses said, right? Like, do we want to go to the promised land? Sure we do, but only if you're going to be there. If you're not going to be there, Lord, like we don't want the, we don't want the land flowing with milk and honey. There's giants there and we can't go face giants if you're not there with us, right? May that be our heart's cry as well. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for what we've been learning over these past five weeks. We thank you for the time to just remember and refresh our hearts today about what you've been trying to teach us. Lord, help us to be faithful to apply it now. Lord, help us to leave today with a resolve that you are good, which means everything that you give to us is meant to be used for good purposes, not God purposes. Lord, help us to enjoy our families and our friends and our hobbies and our jobs and, and all the other things that you give us. But Lord, help us never to, to elevate them to worship status where they gain priority over you. Lord, help us to keep ourselves from idols where the book of 1 John challenges us that in the New Testament, that idolatry is still very real today. Lord, help us to fight against it. Lord, help us to gain a deeper appreciation for Jesus as we see everything in the Old Testament pointing to him. Lord, Lord, help us to see the justice and the mercy that you communicate throughout all the pages of the Bible. Lord, help us to resolve to keep following you because you're good. Lord, we don't know what you look like. We long to see you and know you more. But God, help us to, to realize that you've given us enough You've given us a description of your goodness. Lord, help that to put us on a lifelong journey to know you more and more in that goodness. Lord, as we take time now to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray that this would be our action step today to once again communicate publicly that we are following you. We want your guidance, your direction, and your provision. We want to go wherever you want us to go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.